Will you please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4. And these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. So if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. And those Bibles are marked at Ephesians 4, and they are our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word, so please accept that one from us. Ephesians 4. In 2006, author Jerry Bridges spent several months writing a book called Respectable Sins, and the subtitle is Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. The book has chapters for several common sins that have become acceptable among Christians, things like discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, impatience, anger, and several others. But at one point in the book, he says this, In the months that I've been working on this book, I have been often asked in social settings, what are you working on now? When I mention respectable or acceptable sins we tolerate, invariably someone will roll his or her eyes and say, oh, you mean like gossip. He says this, apparently this is the first of the Christian sins that comes to mind. So it must be quite prevalent among us and is something we continue to tolerate in our lives. So prevalent and dangerous is this issue of the tongue to the health of the church, it's necessary to be reminded often of the destructive power of our words. Some years ago, I attended a seminar led by a serial church planter. Phil Spry has started several churches over the years, and he was sharing with this group of pastors how he's gone about starting and sustaining a new church. One of the things he said was that he preaches on the dangers of the tongue annually. In his case, he preaches the same sermon once a year to keep it before the people. So if you may think that I'm over-dramatizing the importance of this matter... Experienced pastors are very wary of what the tongue can do to a congregation. And consider this, friends. Consider how much the Bible has to say about this issue. The book of Proverbs alone has nearly 60 passages dealing with our words. Today we're going to see passages from other portions of Scripture as well dealing with this same topic. One reason this issue requires such attention is the mere volume of words that we speak which makes us all vulnerable to their misuse. In 2007, Science Magazine published the results of a study designed to determine who talks more, men or women. Now, women are generally assumed to be more talkative than men. And in this study, data were analyzed from 396 participants who wore a voice recorder that sampled ambient sounds for several days. Participants' daily word use was extrapolated from the number of recorded words. It turns out that women and men both spoke about 16,000 words per day. Now, at 16,000 words a day, and allowing that you sleep on average, let's say not that much, let's say six hours on average, we speak about 900 words every hour. Now, if you've been up for an hour, some of you, it doesn't look like it's been that long, then on average, you've done that already, spoken 900 words. Now, you may not be a morning person, so you're just getting warmed up. 
And so what that means is, after you've had that first cup of coffee in Cafe Community, somebody is in for an avalanche of words from you. 16,000 words a day, 900 words every hour. If you live to be 75, and let's say you've been speaking fluently for 70 of those, you'll have been speaking for 25,500 days, and at 16,000 per day, you'll have spoken 408,800,000 words. 408,800,000 words. And Jesus says this. Every person will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Just two verses prior to this is when Jesus famously says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The expositor's Bible commentary says this, the Greek word argos, which is translated careless in the verse on the screen, refers to words that might be thought insignificant, except for their revealing what is in the heart. Jesus is saying that every spoken word reflects the heart's overflow and is known to God. Therefore, words are of critical importance. Now, it's an intimidating thought that we'll give an account for millions of words. But I can reduce your judgment tally by at least half. Because I recommend this from Philippians 2. Do everything without complaining or arguing. If we would just implement that one thing, do everything without complaining, that would reduce perhaps by half the number of words that we would be negatively given an account for. And so you see already, friends, that the way we speak is clearly very important to God. And so I ask you, do you want to speak in a way that pleases God? It is very good for us, all of us, to stop talking and listen to the Word of God. The Word of God in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. We're going to see the rest of that passage in just a bit. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, we need your aid now as always. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move up on our hearts, open our minds, make us attentive and ready recipients of the truth of your word. May we, in this time, consider what you say to us, each of us personally, not to someone else, not in theory, but concretely applied to me and to us as your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, Ephesians 4.29 is part of a section that begins in verse 25. This section provides direct commands for the things that we are, according to verses 22 and 24, to put off and others that we are to put on. Like we're getting rid of things that we wear and putting on other things to wear appropriate for who we are. And who we are in Christ is developed marvelously in chapters 1 through 3. And then chapter 4 begins 
three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, saying, in effect, since this is who you are, live out of that new identity that you have in Christ. And that's why chapter 4 and verse 1 begins this way, I urge you then to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Verses 22 and 24 tell us to put off the old self and put on the new self. And verse 24 says this new you, this new me, is, quote, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what does this new Christian you look like? And beginning in verse 25, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 4, we're given six areas of life that should show the difference that Christ has made. The new man or the new woman that he is remaking us to be. Verse 25, the new you puts on truth. Verses 26 and 27, the new you puts on peace. Verse 28, the new you puts on generosity. And in our passage today, the new you puts on constructive speech. In verse 31 of chapter 4, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 2, the new you puts on kindness. And then chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the new you puts on purity. These six things are to be characteristic of those who are new creatures in Christ. We put on truth and peace and generosity, constructive speech and kindness and purity. And all of these, they are all important because, now get this, friends, they are all reflections of what God is like. They are, in the words of verse 24, what it looks like to, quote, be like God. To put it another way, failure to display these things in our lives is failure to display the character of God. To focus particularly on our words, failure to speak constructively is failure to speak as God does. We each then need what I say in the title of today's message. It's found at the top of the outline that you had inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take a look at that. And you see the title at the top there is Divine Speech Therapy, something that each of us needs. And I say in that outline, first of all, our words affect people. Our words affect people. Now, we're giving, given these commands, beginning in verse 25, about speaking truthfully and being peacemakers and being generous and now engaging in construct, constructive speech. We're given these commands, but understand there is always background to God's commands. Now, why can I say there is always background to God's commands? Well, it's because God was here first, and his commands reflect what he wants, what he has designed. So often when you see commands in the New Testament, they have their roots in something about God given to us in the Old Testament, many times going back to the very beginning of the Bible. And this ability to communicate, about which we are commanded in verses 29 and 30 of Ephesians 4, is no exception. It's rooted in our unique creation in the image of God. Now, we won't take time to turn there, but many of you are familiar with the opening chapters of the Bible that tell us that God spoke creation into existence. In the opening chapter of the Bible, in its very opening verses, you find things like, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God said, Let the land produce vegetation, and it was so. 
So God speaks creation into existence. And also in that opening chapter of the Bible, we see God speaking to God. That is, communication within the triune persons of the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That opening chapter says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. And when we see God later speaking to humanity, the first man and woman, the Bible says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. God speaks to humanity. And humanity, made in the image of God with the capacity to communicate in words, speaks to God. After Adam is presented by God with the first woman, Adam speaks to God and to her when he praises God with these words. Genesis 2 says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now notice, in the first two chapters of the Bible, there are only two persons speaking, man and God. But in the third chapter, we're presented with a third person speaking. The serpent speaking challenges man's uniqueness as the only one among God's creatures who has this capacity to communicate in words. It challenges man's uniqueness and it sets humanity up for God does not have your best interest at heart deception. This foreign voice seeks and unfortunately finds a hearing. And the Bible says we've given heed. Each of us has to his voice. Instead of hearing the voice of the good shepherd, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And the adversary's tactic is not for us to always or even usually to employ our words in blatant falsehood. Rather, it's for us to use our words carelessly, flippantly. If we get in the habit of treating our words as cheap, we will most certainly at times and often use our words destructively. So the book of Proverbs, which I said nearly 60 times, has something to say about our tongues and about our words, says this, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Now one commentator says this, what people say can lead to life or death. This proverb affirms this point and then explains it. Those who love it will eat its fruit, and the it must refer to the tongue. That is what the tongue says. So those who enjoy talking, that is those who enjoy indulging in talking, must bear its fruit, whether good or bad. So our words affect people. And our words can affect people, says Proverbs, for ill, or we will see for good. I say in your outline, our words can affect people for ill. And that's why Ephesians 4.29 then says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now the word unwholesome is a word that means rotten and rotting. And Jesus, as we've seen, says unwholesome words come from our hearts. What happens is, friends, they develop and fester in our hearts until they come out in destructive ways. 
Many years ago, I read an illustration in a management journal when I was working a real job for a living. And this management journal gave this illustration of how people get involved in talking around the water cooler and destructive talk in the, in the office and workplace. And it compared people in an office with bad at, bad, that have bad attitudes to a mesh or burlap bag that's full of rotted fruit. It smells awful, and rotten fermented juice seeps from the fruit and through the bag. And over time and from time to time, something can just set the individual off such that they swing the bag over their head and splatter others with their stench. And it happens not only in offices, but in homes and in churches and among church people. Why? How can rotten and rotting speech come out of the mouths of those who claim the Lord Jesus? Why? Let me give you one clue as to why. It's unbelief. You say unbelief. How so? The reason we dismiss, in the words of Jerry Bridges, accept or make respectable the sin of the use of our tongue, the reason we do that is because there are things we don't believe. We don't believe that our hearts are really wicked, even though the Bible says so. Because if we did we would guard them jealously. We don't believe that others' hearts are wicked, though the Bible says so. Dear friends, how many times do we need to be taken in by someone with a sweet smile and a sweet disposition who has poison and gossip and slander coming out of his or her mouth? And why are we taken in? Because we don't believe that people are wicked the way the Bible says. And so it can't be that bad because that person's saying it and he or she is so nice. We don't believe when the Bible says Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And as a result, we are naive not just to a fault, to a sin. We don't believe our hearts are wicked. We don't believe the hearts of others are wicked. And so we are taken in. We don't believe that church people can do this. Though the Bible is writing this very command in Ephesians 4.29, no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. You know, folks, that's written to the church at Ephesus, right? That's written to church folk. We don't believe God's dire warnings about the destructive nature of the tongue. That's why I say this is how we fall prey to these sins of the tongue. We say we're believers, and the truth is there are important things we don't believe. The Journal of Biblical Counseling lists five kinds of gossips. 
and gives a motivation, a suggested motivation for each of these kinds of gossips, and then a biblical solution. I'm going to go through these quickly. The first of these five they call the informer. This is the person who likes to know what's going on and likes for people to know that they know what's going on. The informer gets information and likes to give information. What's the motivation? Power. Because information is power. And what's the solution? The solution is in the very book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1.19 speaks of his, Christ's, incomparably great power. Chapter 3 and verse 20 speaks of the power that is is at work within us. If one wants power, then the informer is looking at it, looking for it in the wrong place and in the wrong way. The second type of gossip is the grumbler. You've got the informer and the grumbler. The grumbler complains. The grumbler criticizes. When he's upset about something and misery loves company, he will talk about others behind their backs. This kind of gossip can be found in nearly every workplace, every family, every city, every school, and every church. We love to grumble and complain about authority figures, parents, teachers, politicians, pastors. We often euphemistically call this venting. Thanks for letting me vent. Yet there's no constructive purpose in this kind of talk and no love in the speaker's heart, just grumbling. The motivation is often jealousy. And the solution is to be content, as the Bible says, in any and every situation. You've got the informer, you've got the grumbler, you've got the backstabber. Like the grumbler, the backstabber is full of complaint, but his heart is angry or more hateful. Backstabbing gossip overflows from a malicious heart bent on revenge and retaliation. The backstabber actually desires the target of his gossip to experience pain. The backstabber usually begins by spreading lies, starting a smear campaign. Or a backstabber will hurt someone by spreading a shameful truth. Love, on the other hand, covers the warts in another's reputation. Backstabbers not only uncover the warts, they go and tell everybody about the warts. The motivation for many backstabbers is revenge. The backstabber has somehow been foiled, perhaps hurt and damaged, and is now angry. What's the solution, biblically? Waiting on God and trusting in God. A fourth kind of gossip they call the chameleon. The chameleon gossips just to fit in with other gossips, not to be left out. The motivation is what Proverbs twenty nine twenty five speaks of, the fear of man which will prove to be a snare. Fearing man, revering man. Wanting to be accepted by man. What's the solution? The reverence, the fear of the Lord. And then fifthly, there's the busybody. The busybody gossip has nothing better to do but talk on the phone or private message or whatever vehicle of communication. What's the motivation? It's a form of entertainment, something interesting to do. And what's the solution? Engaging in intentional acts of love and service on behalf of others. That's the solution to the busybody. Get busy helping others. Now, our passage in Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, friends, it's not enough to avoid the negative, the bad, the sinful, the destructive, but we must positively speak what is good and constructive. 
So verse 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful. Now that word translated helpful in verse 29 is the same word that's translated doing something useful in verse 28. The Greek word behind both is usually translated good. So in verse 28, do good with your hands. And in verse 29, it's saying speak good with your mouths. Dear friends, God is not only concerned then that we do well, but also that we talk well. Our words can affect people. They do affect people either for ill or, I say secondly in your outline, for good. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Building others up. That's where we get the idea of constructive, constructing others, building others. Building others up with our words, constructive words. With our mouths, we can build people up in the truth so that they see God and so that they see themselves and so that they see others accurately. With our mouths, we can encourage people in faith to believe God because of His promises, to believe God because of His deeds. With our mouths, we can comfort those in trouble or affliction. With our mouths, we can be used to rescue those that are lost. With our mouths, we speak the gospel. And on and on it goes as to how we can use the gift of communication that God has granted to us as His image bearers in constructive ways that build up others. The NIV says, so that it may benefit those who listen. One translation says, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, please don't make the mistake of thinking that what verse 29 is telling us is that your words are always pleasant to the person who receives them. It's not saying that. Sometimes in order to build someone up, we have to tell them the truth and sometimes painful truth, difficult truth. We are to always speak the truth in love, chapter 4 and verse 15. But nevertheless, hear this. When someone is sinning, in order to build them up, they must first be confronted with the fact of their sin. And you can be sure, you can be sure, and I have experienced it many times. When you confront a person with his or her sin, they will not be thrilled with you immediately. They may not be thrilled with you for the rest of their lives. But if God the Holy Spirit takes those words of truth and implants them in the heart of a regenerate person and repentance comes about, they will later thank you for your willingness to help them. But many of us, unfortunately, think the most loving thing to do is never deal with an issue and simply ignore it. Sometimes that is best. We can overlook issues, a la 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But not usually and never with a persistent problem. The New Testament has this marvelous Greek word, nutheteo, which is you take all of the verses, and we're going to see a few of them, but you take all of the verses that use this word and put them together. Here's a working definition of what nutheteo means. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. 
loving confrontation with truth for the purpose of seeing change happen. That verse is used in a number of passages, that word is used in a number of passages, translated with several different English words. For example, Romans 15. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to nuthateo one another, instruct one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brothers, warn, there's the word, warn those who are in sin. Encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. We make the mistake, friends, of saying love covers a multitude of sins to mean love never deals with sin. And the Bible instructs us to deal with sin, not only in our own lives, but then to help others to deal with theirs as well. Love covers a multitude of sins, and sometimes that covering comes in the form of a loving confrontation with the truth. James 5 says this, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death, and notice, cover over a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins, and sometimes that love means having a wanderer brought back from the error of his or her way. This can be done without being angry. It can be done without being confrontational in the sense of a hostile encounter. But the person on the receiving end is not usually likely to love you in that moment. But Colossians 4 tells us this, Let your conversation be always full of grace and seasoned with salt. And so note this now, friends. This confrontation, this correction, this admonition, this warning, it may well be to someone who's using their tongue in unwholesome ways around you. Some of us are being called by God Almighty to love someone else enough and to love his church enough to lovingly confront another with the truth of how they're using their tongues. So I have some application for you in your outline. Remember this. Our words are sacred. Words are sacred. And when I say sacred, I say it for this reason. We're the only creature that talks in words. We're not the only creature that communicates, but we're the only one that does so in words. The variety of our communication vehicle, words, means that we can be creative in their use and can communicate cursing and blessing, constructively and destructively. So it is a sacred gift, a set-apart gift, a different gift that humanity has from all other creation that we can communicate in these things called words. And that sacredness means that we are set apart for God's use, including in the way we use our words. It means that we determine to use our gift of language for the purpose for which God gave it. My tongue, my mouth, your tongue, your mouth have been redeemed for new use for His purposes and not our own. So remember, our words are sacred. Remember as well, I say in your outline, 
that words reveal our hearts. The Bible, more often than not, defines a gossip as a kind of person, not as a kind of speech. That's why we had those five different types of gossips, different types of persons. It's a type of person, not so much a kind of speech. It's something you are, not just something you do. And God is actually more interested in the people who are doing the speaking than in their words because their words represent what's going on inside. And Jesus helped us to understand that when he said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This truth is central to the discussion of gossip. We've got to ask the question of ourselves, what is going on inside? What's overflowing from the heart of a gossip? Why do we do it? As it turns out, this is a sin of great variety and complexity. Do you remember I said earlier, one of the reasons we do it is because of unbelief. We don't believe a number of things. One of the things we don't believe is that we are as bad as the Bible says we are. Do you all remember what Jeremiah 17 says? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Oh, dear friend. Oh, dear friend of a dear friend. If you're engaging in unwholesome talk, if you're listening to unwholesome talk, do not dismiss it as if I don't mean anything by it. You don't know your own heart. I don't know my own heart. Only God does, and God tells us that, and that's why God gives us instruction about these kinds of things so that our hearts are examined and so that we see the kinds of things that are in the recesses of our hearts that are coming out in our mouths. We cannot, cannot dismiss our unwholesome speech. It's a reflection of our hearts no matter who we are. The heart is active. It's not that my heart was just filled with junk that others placed there. My heart has actively processed what I've heard and produced, in effect, spam that comes spewing out. You remember I mentioned Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, confronting those sins that we tolerate? He said this, For some years I've sought to apply Ephesians 4.29 to my speech. I'm sure I fail many times, but at least that's the benchmark or target that I aim for. One night I started to say something negative to my wife about a former colleague. But then I thought of Ephesians 4.29, and as we say, I bit my tongue. I felt quite good about my self-control until the next morning. During my time with God, I thought about the previous night's incident. Then the thought came to me, but you thought it, didn't you? I was convicted. I realized I needed to guard not only my mouth, but more important, I needed to guard my heart. And doesn't God say this? Proverbs 4, above all else. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Dear friends, long before you lost it with your words, you lost it with your thoughts that emanate from your heart. James warns about the use of the tongue. 
James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, verses 9 and 10 of that passage, he says this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. I want you to notice the mention of those made in God's likeness. What James is referring to is the fact that we should treat others Brothers and sisters, as the reflection of God Himself, as His image bearers, that's what we are. And that's how we should treat one another with our words. Our words affect people for ill or for good. Quickly, in your outline, our words affect God. Our words affect people. Our words affect God. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. For sake of time, I just need to hasten and give you the application in just a moment. But suffice it to say that the God who speaks and the God who gave us as his image bearers the ability to speak on his behalf, the God who knows every careless word that we speak and will call it all to account, our God is displeased when we use our words for our own ends and for destructive ends. And so I say in application, remember, God is the most important person in any relationship. God is the most important person in any relationship. In every relationship, there are at least three persons. There's you, the other human, and there's God. And God is always the most important. I'm asking you, dear friends, to make two commitments coming out of this. The first is this. And forget what I'm asking you. This is what God says directly in Ephesians 4.29. Here's the first commitment. I will only speak what builds up others. I will only speak what builds up others. That's a direct command of God. And then secondly, as a practical matter, if I hear negative talk about another... I will insist that the speaker and I go to the individual or individuals spoken about. If I hear negative talk about another, I will insist that I and the speaker go to the individual or individuals that were spoken about. Some of you were here last week and you know that our church had to deal with an issue related to the tongue. An issue that has caused harm to many. If that one principle had been followed, that harm could not have been done. If what was said was turned back and this were done, we will go and confront the person that you claim said that about me. Then it would have meant that that person would have had to get it right if indeed they said it. Or it would have meant that a lie would have been exposed had they not. If the individual says, this person said this about you, and they didn't, it would have exposed the lie. We're going to go to that person, and we're going to find out. And do you know, friends, the only way you ever get truth out of those who are in the habit of lying is you get everybody at the same table. Here's what Psalm 19 says. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. Remember at the beginning, Matthew twelve thirty six says, we'll be judged for every careless word for the nearly 409 million that we'll speak. Oh, friend, how can you withstand that judgment? How can I withstand that judgment? The answer is we cannot. But Christ has withstood that judgment for us on the cross. And he has spoken perfectly with his mouth. And his righteousness is applied to us. So that our position now before God is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. But in our experience, our God is calling us to live worthy, to live consistent with the calling now that we have received. Here's your take-home truth in your outline. Christians show the difference Christ has made in how they talk. Christians show the difference that Christ has made in how they talk. Now, we're going to prepare for communion. If our musicians will come. The reason we're having communion is because there are a few things that will tear at the heart of the unity of a body of believers, like the destructive use of the tongue. Those of you that are on our mailing list know that this past Monday, I sent you a lengthy email that included an email I sent back on March 16th, twice now this year, twice. As your pastor, I have implored you to get this thing right with regard to the tongue. To go to those about whom or to whom you have spoken in unwholesome ways and get it right. I pray that that happened this week. If it did not, then we're not, in a, we're not in a position to take communion. I'll explain that in a moment. But just understand, if you did not heed those words of Almighty God, Matthew 5, 23 and 24, make it right or leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift. If we did not heed that, then we're not in a position to participate in the unity of the body as we have been participating in destroying it. I know I didn't get a call from anyone. What a cool thing. Nobody has talked negatively about the pastor in an unwholesome way about the pastor. I would be delighted with that, except I know it not to be true. Now, I can handle it. It's not really important about who's being talked about, me, you, or anybody else. What's important is image bearers are being spoken of in slanderous ways. And God says, make it right. And for some of you, it hasn't happened. And if it hasn't happened, you don't participate. Now, I leave that between you and God. We're going to prepare for communion now by singing a song beneath the cross of Jesus. We're going to sing two verses of the song, and then when we're done with communion, we will sing the third and final. The second verse that we're going to sing in just a moment says this, Beneath the cross of Jesus, his family is my own. One strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? 
beneath the cross of Jesus see the children called by God. Let's stand together and sing. seated. We're going to have communion now, so who should participate? Communion is only for those who have trusted Christ as Savior. If you don't know what that means, then I'd love to explain that to you at a time of your convenience. So see me afterwards, and let's set a time to get together. In the meantime, we're delighted that you're our guest, and we encourage you to observe this ancient Christian rite. For those who have trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible gives one other requirement, that we confess sin, particularly sin that harms the unity of his body, the church. Communion is the remembrance of Christ's body broken and the celebration of Christ's body united in the church. Therefore, sins against the body are a direct attack on communion and must be forsaken and reconciled before participation. I wrote to you, as I mentioned this past Monday, asking that you repair relationships, especially confessing sins of the tongue to those to whom or against whom your words were directed. If you spoke unwholesome words to or about your brothers and sisters and have failed to reconcile, you should refrain from communion in keeping with Jesus' words in Matthew 5. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. In just a bit, we're going to take time to go to the Lord and confess our sin. And you can confess that sin. The problem is you've missed the opportunity to make reconciliation. You can do that later. 
It may be that we have some other sin that we refuse to give up or something the Lord has told us in his word to do that we're unwilling to obey. In either of those cases, take it to the Lord, confess it. He promises to forgive. One of those matters, I always remind you at communion, is the issue of baptism. The Lord commands baptism. It is something that all who follow him are instructed to do. And we have a baptism July 27th. If you've never been baptized or if you're not sure if what you had happened when you were an infant counts, see me about that, and we will move forward. If you've looked into baptism but you're just refusing to do so, it's a sin that needs to be confessed. You can do that this morning and then follow up with me and we can go from there. So who should participate? It's those who know Christ as Savior and who have confessed known sin in their lives. If we have young people in the congregation this morning, the requirement is the same for our children. They need to know Christ as Savior and be willing to be baptized. There's no prescribed age for communion, and so we leave it to parents to decide if their children should participate.